Welcome to episode 12 of History of the Marine Corps. The Marines and the Navy defend the Delaware. In the last episode, we discussed the actual Battle of Nassau. The battle would be the Marines' first amphibious landing, and it would be an undeniable success. We touched base on Samuel Nicholas's involvement in this raid, and a little about Commodore Isaac Hopkins' leadership. This week we will talk about the Marines at sea, and touch upon the significance of Marines aboard naval vessels. It would be the first time Continental Marines cooperated with the colony's naval and marine forces. Although Marines won't have a significant role in this battle, they did play an important role in naval warfare. Thanks for joining, now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The Continental Marines and the Navy just had tremendous success in New Providence. Marines participated in their first amphibious landing, and they were able to take Fort Montague and Fort Nassau with relative ease and with little confrontation. Although Governor Brown was able to ship 162 barrels of powder out of Nassau, the Marines were still able to commandeer a lot of weapons and ammunition that would be used to support the colonies in their fight against Great Britain. After loading the ships, and a little bit of celebrating thanks to the governor's private liquor stash, Continental Marines and sailors left the Bahamas on March 17th and sailed towards Providence, Rhode Island to deliver the supplies they just acquired. This was a significant battle for Marines and the 13 colonies. The American military's morale was lifted with such an easy win, and the British realized that colonists weren't just a bunch of rebels with pitchforks. The world watched as the American colonies stood up against Great Britain and successfully completed a raid against New Providence. This was no longer a scenario of a rambunctious colony protesting against Britain. The Americans were fighting for independence, and they just took this war international. The Americans started to show the world that they are a challenging foe, and this was no longer the case of a few radicals protesting against the British Empire. The Americans were organized had a capable military force, and was challenging Britain's superior Royal Navy. Britain had new variables to account for. Before this battle, the priority of Britain's forces was to pacify the rebels in the colonies, but now the colonies had a fleet. Britain had territories from Canada throughout the West Indies, and there was a strong possibility of every one of those territories being attacked by the Americans. Britain was still paying its war debt from the French and Indian Wars. Ironically, the same war debt that caused the colonies to protest in the first place. And now it seems like they will be paying for another full-out war. Britain's plan to tax the colonies to pay for the French and Indian War backfired, and now they will need to deal with racking up additional debt trying to put the colonies back in line. But to Britain, this fight was no longer about the money. The Americans were rebelling against the king, and this was unacceptable. Even with the irony of a war breaking out due to Britain's attempt to pay down a previous war debt, Britain needed to eliminate the threat of America's new force at sea. A common tactic used during these times was to confiscate civilian ships and outfit them with carriage guns and other equipment and turn them into military vessels. This was cheaper and quicker than building ships dedicated strictly to warfare. Unfortunately, for one Mr. Bernard, he would experience this firsthand. 
Bernard owned the Diligence, a ship that was captured by the British. After spending days on board the HMS Phoenix, Bernard was released and immediately notified the New York Provincial Council that his ship was captured by the British and was being outfitted with cannons. The New York Provincial Council understood the risk this ship could have on trade, and the following day sent a request to the Continental Congress to purchase an armed vessel and assign it to Egg Harbor with the mission of protecting the colony's trade route. Simultaneously, and it's not sure if this was done on purpose or if it was just a coincidence, but the HMS Phoenix's northern and southern cruising ground was extended by 50 miles, and it now included the Capes of the Delaware and Sandy Hook. This caused a ruckus, and colonies were concerned the HMS Phoenix would impact the city's trade route, so the Provincial Council sent a letter to the President of the Continental Congress, John Hancock. The writer who was delivering the letter covered 90 miles in less than a day to deliver the message. Once the letter arrived in Philadelphia, Hancock presented it to the Marine Committee for consideration. Everyone on the committee agreed that this document needed to be presented to the Continental Congress with the suggestion that the purchase of another ship to help defend the harbor was essential. A resolve was issued that stated, quote, The Marine Committee is directed to purchase the armed vessel now in the River Delaware on the most reasonable terms for the service of the continent and that her destination is left to the said Marine Committee. This resolve was a little different than previous resolves. It was classified as secret, and the Marine Committee specifically requested that they be placed in charge of her destination, not Congress. The Marine Committee ended up purchasing the Wild Duck, an armed brig that just arrived in port with a load of powder. The Wild Duck was a fairly large vessel. It was 86 feet in length, and the ship's beam was 24 and a half feet. The Wild Duck sides were painted black with yellow moldings and she had 16 cannons mounted on her as well. This ship was perfect for the mission and after purchasing the Wild Duck, she was renamed to the Lexington. The Lexington needed to be equipped and prepared for war. This task was assigned to Joshua Humphrey, a shipbuilder from Philadelphia who was able to complete the work in just nine days. John Barry was given the command of the Lexington. The Marine Committee also appointed 1st Lieutenant Luke Matthewman, 2nd Lieutenant Robert Scott, and Marine Captain Abraham Boyce to support the Lexington. There was also another Marine Lieutenant appointed, but his identity is unknown. While the Lexington was being outfitted for battle, an expressman from Delaware arrived in Philadelphia with some urgent news. The Pennsylvania Committee assigned Colonel Henry Fisher as their scout at Cape Henlope in Delaware. He sent a letter with the expressman stating that a large ship just passed Capes and entered into Delaware Bay. The Pennsylvania Navy quickly responded and shipped four row galleys from the Pennsylvania Navy to Reed Island. The galley had orders to cooperate with the Lexington in the destruction of all enemy vessels found in the river. However, the Lexington was still being prepared for war. The ship did not have the needed weapons to defend against an enemy ship and the Marine officers were still on shore, trying to muster the Marine detachment who would man the vessels. Captain Barry, naval captain of the Lexington, was also trying to convince Congress that he needed more small arms to assist in the battle. As more intelligence started to come in from Delaware, the large ship, originally spotted by Colonel Fisher, turned out to be the British frigate the Roebuck. 
The Roebuck was equipped with 44 guns and was sent to the Delaware to destroy all obstacles placed by the inhabitants of Pennsylvania in open rebellion against the king. This new intelligence caused Captain Barry to react pretty quickly, and despite not having all Marines on board, he decided to set sail to meet the frigate. On the morning of March 28th, Captain Barry lifted anchor and headed down the Delaware River, leaving behind Captain Boyce and the Marines he had been recruiting on shore. Congress met on the 28th as well, and decided that a second ship needed to be purchased, equipped, and given the mission of defending the Delaware. Another resolve was passed the same day, ordering the new ship to partner with the Lexington and patrol the shores of New York and Virginia. There wasn't much of a debate, and Congress agreed that another ship was needed. They purchased the Molly, which would be renamed as the Reprisal. The Reprisal was larger than the Lexington, and was painted mostly black. Her moldings on her quarters were painted white, and her stern was a combination of yellow and white. The Marine Committee assigned Captain Lambert Wicks to command the ship. Captain Wicks had two Marine officers on board, Captain Miles Pennington and Lieutenant John Elliott. They had the same task as Marines on board the Lexington, recruit men to serve on the reprisal. However, the Marines were facing some challenges finding available men. At the same time recruiting was happening, the Hornet and the Wasp just arrived in port and priority was making sure these two ships were back to combat ready. That meant many of the men who would be recruited for duty at sea were recruited for repairing the Hornet and the Wasp. Captain Wicks and Captain Pennington were forced to search outside of Philadelphia to look for a suitable crew to man the reprisal. Captain Pennington headed as far south as Wilmington, where he recruited the first black marine, John Martin, a.k.a. Keto. At the time, Keto was a slave to William Marshall in Delaware, and Captain Pennington recruited Keto without the permission of his owner. Captain Pennington recruited 24 privates and at least two sergeants for duty on board the reprisal. While the reprisal was getting ready for battle, and men were being recruited, the Lexington was already embarked on her mission. Captain Barry didn't want to face the Roebuck head-on. He knew the Lexington was no match for the 44-gun frigate, so he quietly snuck out to sea and headed to Egg Harbor. Captain Barry learned that the HMS Phoenix was heading north. The Phoenix had too much of a head start, so Barry made the decision not to chase down the Phoenix and to head south towards Virginia. He was able to make it to Virginia by April 7th. Come morning, an unknown ship was sighted and Barry immediately ordered his men to ready the cannons and prepare for a battle. As the two vessels confronted each other, it turned out that the unidentified ship was a support vessel for the HMS Liverpool, the Edward. The Edward and the Lexington closed in on each other. When the two ships were several hundred yards from one another, the Lexington fired the first round. Both ships exchanged fire for over an hour. The Lexington was successful, and the captain of the Edward allowed his ship to be boarded by a selected few. Captain Barry wrote a letter to Congress, debriefing them on the battle. In his report, Barry stated that the Marines and sailors on board the Lexington behaved with much courage. The Edward was sent to Philadelphia and now belonged to the colonies. 
the Lexington made its way back to Egg Harbor for repairs it sustained during the battle. While the Lexington was in Egg Harbor, the Marine Committee ordered the Lexington to Cape May to provide an escort to the Betsy, which was carrying Silas Dean, the first diplomat to France. Captain Barry was also instructed to pick up the Marines he left on shore, Captain Boyce and his men. Captain Barry unloaded most of the unneeded weight on board the Lexington, rigged the Lexington for full sail, and prepared for a fast sail. However, even after preparing the ship and with a good wind in the Lexington's sails, they were never able to reach the Betsy. When the morning light was rising on the 26th of April, a 17-ship British fleet was spotted headed towards Charleston, South Carolina. The British fleet spotted the Lexington, and the British Admiral sent a frigate, the Sol Bay, towards the American ship. The Lexington was able to outrun the Sol Bay, and soon, the British vessel gave up chase. Although the Lexington was not able to catch up to the Betsy, it was able to escape the Sol Bay and made its way up the Delaware to Philadelphia without a major incident. Captain Barry's return to Philadelphia was greeted with excitement from the local population. Everyone understood how dangerous this mission was, and seeing Captain Barry and his crew arrive back in port safely gave the community a sense of relief. However, that would not last long. Soon after the Lexington's arrival, Colonel Fisher dispatched another letter stating he saw two British frigates heading up the river. The Lexington was being repaired, and the Pennsylvania Committee quickly assembled to discuss how they would proceed with the looming threat. After a quick discussion, the Pennsylvania Committee ordered the commander of the Pennsylvania fleet, Captain Thomas Reed, to call every boat and sailor to their stations, and each to prepare for immediate action. Everyone gathered and waited until midnight. Another expressman arrived and stated, Two ships of war, a topsail schooner, and three small vessels were sighted 20 miles south of Wilmington. The following morning, the Pennsylvania Committee met again to discuss how to proceed. They ordered Captain Reed to advance down the river, meet with his fellow captains, and agree on a way to attack, take, sink, destroy, or drive off the said vessels, if possible, without exposing any of the boats to capture or destruction. On May 7th at 12.30 p.m., Captain Thomas Reed received his orders, called the conference of his captains, and recited his orders to them. After he read his orders, he asked the captains for their opinions. The response he received was shared throughout his crew. They were short-staffed and needed men to support his mission. Captain Reed agreed, and he made adjustments throughout his fleet so they could bring up manpower, and that night, the fleet assembled near Hog Island and headed down the river. Captain Reed passed these orders down to Captain Wicks. There was a little pushback from Wicks when he originally heard the orders. He stated that he hadn't seen these orders before and he refused to let any of his men go without validating if these orders were true. Captain Reed provided a copy of the orders and Wicks quickly complied. Wicks sent off four boats the next morning. The two pilot boats contained Lieutenant Robert Harris and 10 seamen, and the two fireboats carried Marine Captain Miles Pennington and his 26 Marines. Word would soon arrive from Wilmington, affirming the Roebuck and the Liverpool were at the mouth of the creek. The city of Philadelphia was already preparing for the ships to arrive. Earlier in the day, the city was building their defenses, 
which included providing militiamen ammunition to prepare for the attack and organizing men into positions that would best defend the city from a naval bombardment. The Lexington was currently being repaired from its previous battle, and the Marine Committee decided to use her crew to help prepare for the imminent attack. Captain Barry received the following order. Collect your officers and men and repair down to the provincial armed ship Captain Reed and supply him with as many people as he may want to completely man that ship for immediate action. You will also spare any of them that may be wanted on board the floating battery or on board the ship reprisal. In short, we expect the utmost exertions from you, your officers, and men in defending the pass at Fort Island and to prevent their coming up to the city. A couple of hours later, the sounds of cannons firing were heard in the distance and drummers immediately called men to arms. Boats were also dispatched towards the Roebuck and the Liverpool. It turned out, the cannons heard were due to the two British ships spotting the 13 row galleys heading down the river. The row galleys initially spotted the British ships and quickly took the first shot. The first round fired was a little under a mile away from the enemy and did not make an impact. The two British ships got into position and returned fire, missing the galleys as well. This battle lasted for two hours and received a lot of attention. As the American and British naval vessels were exchanging volleys, civilians and militiamen crowded the Delaware shores to watch this battle. Colonel Samuel Miles, battalion commander of a colonial militia battalion, commented that after two hours of fighting, a great deal of ammunition was wasted. However, our boats fire much better than the other vessels, but in my opinion, engage at too great a distance. At the end of the two-hour battle, the Roebuck was beached and the galleys pulled back to a safer location. The crew of the Roebuck spent the night guarding their ship against a potential surprise attack. The British crew attempted to refloat the Roebuck multiple times. It wasn't until the next morning at around 0400 that the ship was floating again. About an hour and a half prior to the Roebuck floating again, Captain Reed received a letter from the galleys asking for more powder and ammunition. He quickly set sail all the powder and ammunition that could be spared. After they received their supplies, the galleys were off again to engage the Roebuck and the Liverpool. Upon seeing the galleys, the two British frigates started to give chase. The frigates planned to draw the galleys into deeper waters. There they would be able to better navigate around the galleys and have a better chance of destroying the smaller ships. However, the American galleys did a great job at keeping up a smart fire, but cautiously remained at their usual distance. This chase lasted until sunset. With night approaching, both sides quit firing due to the darkness hindering sighting in the cannons. The galleys caused significant damage to the British frigates. Multiple rounds damaged the stern and the hull of the Roebuck, just above the waterline on both sides. An 18-pound cannonball also struck one of the ship's nine-pounders, destroying it, killing one man, and injuring two others. Riggings, sails, and spars on the British ships received heavy damage during the fight. On the flip side, the galleys received very little damage. The next morning, the Continental Navy was expecting the fight to continue and prepared the galleys for another battle. The galleys got into formation, spread across the river to prepare for the next showdown, but the Roebuck and the Liverpool did not advance towards the galleys. 
To everyone's amazement, the two frigates headed down the river in the opposite direction. They ended up anchoring north of Reedy Island. A council of war was summoned and determined that the galleys be furnished with ammunition of every kind. Only after the galleys have been fully resupplied would they make a general attack upon the enemy. The galleys were not replenished until May 11th, but unfortunately, the two frigates had left Reedy Island and made their way back to the Delaware Bay. Once the Roebuck and the Liverpool arrived at the Delaware Bay, they stated nothing more can be done against the American fleet without more ships, a bomb brig, and a body of troops to act with them. Both ships were given separate orders the next morning, and the Liverpool would cruise off to the Delaware Capes, while the Roebuck would head south. The defense of the Delaware against the two British frigates was the first time Continental Marines cooperated with the colony's naval and marine forces. Even though the contributions by the Continental Marines during this battle wasn't overwhelming as far as manpower was concerned, marine involvement acted as a precursor to future land battles and amphibious expeditions. Join us next week as the Marines will continue to strengthen their partnership with the Continental Navy and embark on other battles at sea. Thanks for listening. Join us next week where we will discuss the Lexington seeing some more action, a strange sickness that put a quarter of Marines and sailors in the hospital, and the purchase of some new frigates. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.